You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by AJ Swoboda, author, professor, and more, who has joined the podcast today to discuss his new book, After Doubt. Now, before we get into the interview, I want to just say thank you to our Patreon supporters who help make these episodes possible. We are over 150 episodes here now, which is such a blessing. It's been an amazing journey for us, and it is possible because of our listeners and because of our brothers and sisters that support the podcast on Patreon. So if you have been blessed by this ministry and you're looking to go even deeper with us, please do consider going over to Patreon. You can find the link in the description below. And for $5 a month, so just the cost of a coffee at Starbucks or something along those lines, you can help keep this ministry alive, reaching people to make space for God, as well as gain access to really cool extra exclusive content, such as podcast episodes, guided practices, live events, articles, and more. So special thank you again to our supporters, and please do consider going and getting plugged in at that link below. Now for today's conversation, I am joined by AJ Swoboda, professor at Bushnell University, the author of the book Subversive Sabbath, which won a number of awards in 2019, right up our alley for spiritual formation here at Rua Space, and is here today to talk about his brand new book, After Doubt. Now, friends, this is a book written for our times because we do face deconstruction, doubt, questions, criticism of the faith at every corner. There's books written about it. There are shows about it. That is kind of the ethos of our culture right now to question tradition, to sort of um, try to come out from under authority or the past or history. And here's the beautiful thing about his book. He doesn't say that deconstruction and doubt are bad. But he also warns against allowing them to take over and lead us completely away from Jesus. So in After Doubt, he sort of forges a path through the middle where deconstruction and doubt and questions, rather than leading us away from the faith and rather than be completely avoided, are something that when done in community and with the other tools that he discusses can actually lead us to a more mature faith, can help us understand new perspectives, can actually help us grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. So no matter where you are on this journey, friends, I think you will find this conversation and especially the book challenging, encouraging, it's a blessing. And whether or not it helps you, it may help someone that you are journeying with in your faith community because we are all facing these types of questions. And so I think this book can definitely help you and be a partner with you on the journey wherever you are. So thank you again, friends, for joining us today. Here is my conversation with AJ Swoboda. AJ, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's such an honor, and I'm really excited to talk about After Doubt. Boy, I am honored to be with you to talk about my book, After Doubt. So I had a chance to dig into it and it was it was challenging and it definitely put some language to my experience coming into my undergraduate and my graduate program. And so I'm very grateful for that. What sort of kicked off your journey? Could you just share a little bit of what After Doubt is and sort of how you came to writing about it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, um, I think there's two answers to that question. Um, one is is a is a is like a theology answer, and one is a like just down to earth like human answer. <laughs> the the, the down to earth human answer is um, for the better part of 22 years of my life, uh, I have served the spiritual that I've served uh, as uh, a spiritual mentor for. Um, uh, generally speaking, uh, college students. So um, for 10 years, I was a college pastor. For 10 years, I was a church planter in urban Portland, Oregon. And now for the last few years as an academic, I'm an undergraduate professor. And I have observed uh, some major theological shifts in the generations of people that I serve. And uh, it is not, a week does not go by now without me observing on social media a person that I used to pastor or, or used to lead who is confessing in, in an open way sort of their deconversion, deconstruction story. Um, so on a theological level, I just, uh, or on a, on a practical level, uh, it's very clear to me and has become very clear to me that the, the church of Jesus has not fully thought through uh, what this experience is like for young, for people. And I shouldn't say young. I mean, I'm talking generation, older generations are doing the same thing, but this deconstruction doubt experience, what does that look like? What is that about? And we need, we need to theologically be mindful about what this looks like. Um, so on a practical level, these are friends, these are family members. These are um, people I've pastored uh, who are wrestling with what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. And it's hard work. And on a theological level, um, I have observed in that world that um, often, uh, if I'm candid, um, we often make theological decisions uh, in really weird ways. And that is that uh, it's, a, it's a pretty dangerous precedent to start making theological decisions for emotional reasons. And that we need to have a deeper theology than our feelings. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> and if we don't, then we will just follow our adrenal gland. And that we don't, that's not our Lord. Our adrenal, our, our neurochemistry is not our savior. So uh, we need to have a deeper theology than our adrenal glands. Yeah. And so there's this movement you're seeing of people sort of walking away from the faith. What, what do you think has led to, I mean, you, you know, in your book, you talked about the, the biblical journey has this element of leaving to it, which I would love to talk about, but first sort of, what do you think is, um, is it, is it accelerating or is this something that's always been kind of happening? Yeah, is it happening quicker? I don't think it's new. Um, I, I think that what has happened is we have a front row now. Um, through social media and platforms that allow us to, to name this stuff publicly, dialogue about it. Um, I don't think it's new. And in fact, when you read, I mean, you, you can't read St. Augustine or Luther or Bonhoeffer or Mother Teresa and not recognize that these were heroes in the faith who woke up every day of their life struggling to learn to follow Jesus. This is not real or it's not new. This is we just have a front row seat now in real time. Um, I should say, you know, part part of this, Phil, is 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 there is unfortunately the conservative and progressive wings of our our community of the church have done a terrific job of failing to recognize the role of Jesus in doubt and deconstruction. Hmm. I would say progressives tend to valorize doubt and deconstruction as though it makes you 
somehow a better Christian if you do it. And conservatives tend to demonize it um, and say it's, a, it's, a, it's an evil, bad thing. The goal is not to doubt and deconstruct. The goal is Jesus. And, 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 and if it's the case, no matter what you walk through, the goal is Jesus. No matter what, if you walk through doubt or not, the goal is Jesus. The goal is not doubt. And the goal is not not doubting. The, mm-hmm. the goal is Jesus. This book is written for people who find themselves in the midst of doubt and deconstruction, have absolutely no idea how to find Jesus in the middle of it. And I argue the premise of the book is that it is entirely possible to question your faith and not lose it. And that, that actually from time to time, doubt and deconstruction become the very place that God wants to meet us. Mm. I think that's a beautiful idea and uh, really hits the nail on the head. And I know that this happened to me when I went to college, right? I I went for physics and then I changed my major to Bible and theology mm-hmm. and started learning about, um, you know, John Dominic Crossan and questions of the <laughs> historical Jesus, right? And does the Bible contradict itself and learning about evolution and big bang theory, psychology, postmodernism, right? All these, all these critiques, all these questions. And yeah, it really did sort of make you Uh, question where you came from. And it seems that we all, whether it's from a, and you talk about this in your book, whether we're from a liberal progressive background or conservative background, there's almost a moment where we rebel against what we were brought up with, right? Like whether, whatever side it's on. Yep. There is a, there is a, um, a theme in the Bible. Um, You have to pay too close attention to it, (laughs) but there's a pretty strong theme of leaving your parents for the sake of following God. I mean, it goes all the way back to Genesis 2. A man will leave his uh, mother and father and, and, and will, you know, the, 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 the original sort of marriage commitment. You have the story of Abram, uh, who leaves his family in Ur. He leaves, he leaves behind his family. You have every disciple uh, who walks away from their family business and their, their family structure in order to follow Jesus. I am not saying here uh, that this is about inter- breaking down intergenerational relationships. What I am saying, though, is that all of us at some point in our life, all of us will have to leave the safe confines of our parents' faith and begin to embrace Jesus on our own. And that process is very painful. I'm a dad. Uh, my son's nine years old. It's terrifying as a parent, knowing that my son at some point is going to have to follow Jesus for him in, 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 in follow Jesus himself and maybe look back and see some of the things I've given to him and be like, dad, that made me need counseling. You know, I'm, I'm terrified about that. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, the process of following God, following Jesus means that we will leave anything in order to pursue the living God. Um, and that, that journey is, is painful. It's hard, but it's very important. I love, by the way, in the book, the story, I tell the story of John the Baptist, whose father was Zechariah, who was the high priest. His dad worked in the temple. And what do we see John the Baptist doing? He's not working in the temple. He's in the desert. What's he doing? He's trying to make the way of the Lord. You know, there's a, you know, I think a lot, to, to, to the point of, of what's happening right now, I think a lot of young people are deconstructing their faith because they see that their parents' faith that was handed to them was coupled to a political agenda. And they, they're having a hard time. How do I follow Jesus, but not have a faith that is 
connected to a political party. And that is a painful process, but an important process nonetheless. So as that leaving element comes, you know, like I look at John the Baptist, right? Like you said, I had never thought of the story that way. So I really appreciated that in the book. When you then do that healthy thing of making your faith your own, one thing you point out in the book as being really vital is still honoring our past. Yes. That we can we can journey to the next thing, but honor the past. And you said at one point, you know, hometowns in the time of Jesus gave no honor to the prophet. And in our time, prophets give no honor to their hometown. So how do we ask these really important questions of, hey, what I was given has some elements of life and yep. maybe some elements that lead toward death. How do we walk and say, I want to move forward to what Jesus is calling me to, but also honor yes. those who came before, like the Ten Commandments, honoring our father and mother, right? So, yes. how, what does that look like? Yeah, it's it's man. The the, the story I just love the story of Elisha, right? When when Elijah when he says to you know Elijah calls Elisha, and Elisha goes home, and he says, "I'm leaving." He he, he burns his carts so that he, he can't go home again, but he kisses his parents. There's a line in that text where he kisses them and then leaves. And that, that is the tension between honor and leaving because, and, and I want to be clear, Phil, when you said, you said to make faith our own, that's important, but it's not the same as making your own faith. Mm-hmm. There is a generation of young people who are not making faith their own. They're making their own faith. And that is, that is, we are, we do not worship the God in our image. We worship the God of the mothers of our fathers who went before us. How do we learn that those are two fundamentally different conversations of either embracing the faith, which is Paul's language, right? He never, he he often talks about, you know, the the faith, the faith, the faith. How do we receive the faith for our own rather than make our own faith? That is the tension. And and I would say that a counselor calls this differentiation. How do you become your own person while simultaneously receive the good that you are given? And for me, when I first met Jesus at 16, I'm, I'm theologically quite conservative. You know, I don't know what your, where your audience is at. I'm absolutely at peace sort of naming these things. Um, you know, sexuality, I'm, I'm quite conservative. Politics, I'm all over the, I'm all over the place. Um, immigrants and refugees, you can call me a progressive. I mean, I'm all over the place. Um, but I can tell you this back in those earlier years, when I met Jesus at 16 years old, um, I, um, met Jesus and then started going to a conservative evangelical church in my hometown. They taught me how to love God. They taught me how to read the Bible. They taught me how to evangelize. They taught me about the mission of the, of God in the world. They taught me a passion and piety for Christ. I'm so grateful for those things, but they also taught me a very low view of women. Mm. And part of my journey was learning to receive those blessings of those early years and still have them in my heart and soul and simultaneously be able to name that I was handed a really pathetic vision of women. And and I think it's absolutely critical that we come to a place in our faith where we do what a grandmother would say, eat the meat and spit out the bones. You know, that you take the good stuff, but also name the bad. But just because you were handed some elements that weren't good doesn't mean you chuck the whole thing. And that's what we see so many people doing. Well, I was handed a, a vision of da da da, and we just chucked the whole thing. Listen, there's no perfect community of Jesus on this planet, and they're going to all handle hand us something that's imperfect, 
just in the same way you're going to hand on to your kids something that's imperfect. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because your baby matters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was one thing. I, I think it might have been Dan Allender. I don't remember. But in mm. seminary, they talked about, hey, all parents mess up their kids in some way. And that was sort of a, a thing for me to realize. Yeah, because I, I have a three-year-old, a five-year-old. And it's like kind of being aware, how am I going to do that to them? But as you were speaking, you know, the story that came to mind for me was um, Adam and Eve. And the, the serpent sort of uh, challenge was, hey, if you become your own God and write the story yourself, mm-hmm. it'll be so much better for you than if you allow your story to be a part of God's story. And it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is just this blanket rejection of any authority <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of in our life to say, hey, if, if anyone has any say over me, that's a bad thing. And so I got to just kind of do it my own. And one of the, some of the examples you talked about were, um, you know, edited Bibles. So like the slave Bibles and Jefferson cutting out miracles and divinity claims and resurrection, those types of things um, to sort of just swing to the one end, not to say, Hey, where does my story fit? And maybe there's been parts of the story handed down to me that weren't that healthy, but also recognizing that this whole thing's got to be done in community, right? Yes. Yes. hundred percent. Um, with, with, um, you just brought up some, you, you should be leading this podcast because you just brought up so many important things along the way. So for example, <laughs> the serpent, the first thing the serpent says to the man and the woman in the garden is, did God really say, the, the very first thing he does is questions what God has said. And that is the ultimate, I mean, the, 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 literally the phrase of the enlightenment that came out of the 17th century was dare to think for yourself. Um, that, is, that is an echo. That is an echo of the serpent. Hmm. God really say, does that really matter? Well, it does matter. What God has said matters. And when he says to the woman, so telling, he says to the woman, um, if you eat from the truth, the fruit, you, you will be like God. Mm-hmm. Well, that echoes the story of Jesus and, and the demon and, and the serpent in the wilderness. When uh, uh, the, the serpent or this, when Satan says to Jesus, uh, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations. And all of a sudden you realize it's the same temptation in both instances. Did, was the woman already like God? She was. She was made into God. Did Jesus already have the nations? He did you all of a sudden realize that that's always the demonic tactic is to offer us something we already have in Christ, in God. Mm. Like to offer us a gift we already have. I, I think we have a lot of people who are being tempted by a lot of voices in our culture that say, um, chase this identity, chase this uh, feeling, chase this emotion, free yourself from authority, free yourself from what God has said, and you will find freedom and love and life. And I would say freedom and love and life are not the rejection of what God has said. They're embracing what God has said. And so to to the point, Phil, that you made about, um, uh, to, to the point that you made about editing our Bibles, you know, you know, Thomas Jefferson couldn't believe in miracles. He called himself a Christian. He called himself a deist, but um, he, he was, you know, his problem was he could only believe in the Bible or God as long as it fit his, his enlightenment values. And so he literally took a pair of scissors to his Bible and cut out all the miracles. We have his Bible. It's in the Smithsonian Institute. 
He cut out all the miracles, all the supernatural, and all the re- resurrection narrative. It's the most depressing gospel ever because there's no resurrection. Hmm. And what he did was he could only believe in God to the degree that it fit with his cultural values. And that is not worship. Worship is loving God for who God is, not who we want God to be. What we need is we need the whole Bible and a God who says things that sometimes we don't want to hear. For finally, we have a God who's not a sycophant, who just tells us everything we want. We have a God who actually speaks truth to us. I want to embrace that God. Well, and and as as you were saying that, you know, the thing I realized is, as you were talking about Jefferson cutting things out of the Bible, for example, it, it made me think, you know, he is rejecting one authority, but he's actually just putting another one on the throne. It's not, you know, like, like that seems to me to be the lie of, Hey, you can become your own God. In reality, we never actually sit on the throne ourselves. There's always some other authority, whether it's the enlightenment movement or whatever it is, that sort of seems to be the lie that you can be on the throne. I mean, this is Jesus, right? Talking about, um, he's the good shepherd. He's, he's the only one that lays down his life. All the other ones run away, right? Like, can we ever actually be on the throne ourselves? Uh, uh, no. And, and you, to your point, St. Augustine in the fourth century wrote a commentary on, on the Gospels, and he said that when we pick and choose which part of the Gospels we like, we're not really trusting in the Gospels, we're trusting in ourselves. It is inherently, the enlightenment is inherently in the invitation of don't trust what God has said, trust yourself. And you want to know why I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my office here at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon, where I teach. If you want to know what it looks like to live in a world where people reject the good and true word of God and place their trust in themselves, it is a generation of young people who are full of anxiety, self-doubt, and can't speak up because they're terrified of being wrong and have absolutely no confidence that they can ascertain what is true or not. Hmm. We are living in an environment where we have lost any sense of trust that God's authority is worthy of living under. Friends, we, we, are, we're, we, we submit our authority to a guy who washes people's feet the night before he dies, to a guy who forgives his executors, to a guy who defeats death. That is a worthy authority to submit to. <laughs> mm. I submit. I submit. And it turns out when you submit to Jesus, your anxiety of having to be your own authority goes away. It's such a liberating gift. And that you seem to be getting into the fruit there of it. And I think that's really key because I, I sort of love the question, how is it working? <laughs> like I always sort of find that to be a helpful question. And uh as you're talking about, it seems to me that the only way we can answer that question of is it working well is when Jesus is the authority, because we can, why are people rejecting authority? Well, it's often we're, eject, we're rejecting authority that we've seen in the world go awry, right? Yeah. Whether it be politics or the church or whatever, we look at that and say, well, authority never works, but we're sort of looking at the wrong authority and then drawing conclusions about the other one. Um so is, is sort of testimony and experience, I guess my, my question I want to get to is, 
if someone is really struggling with having some sort of authority or saying, yeah, you know, I, I hear about all these critiques of the Bible and Christian history, whatever, where, how do we come back to that trustful place again? I, I mean, I think you were starting to mention it there mm -hmm. that it's the one who washes our feet, but how do we trust? Do we yeah. have to just sort of jump and, and see yeah. if it works? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think to answer that question, um, we have to go back to the, night, or the, the late 1990s <laughs> um, and remember those early years of faith when we all read I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Mm. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian, I read Joshua Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. The, and, and in recent years, you know, Harris has deconstructed his faith um, uh, and, um, you know, has actually repented of that book and said I, I was wrong for writing it. But the implicit message of that book that my generation received was, uh, if you save yourself from marriage, you're going to have a fruitful, beautiful marriage that will last forever. And the problem with this message, again, I'm not, I'm not faulting or, or shaming um, uh, Joshua Harris, who has been very clear that he, he rejects the, the concepts of this book. Um, but what that message sent was this. We don't trust Jesus. We trust Jesus for stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a fundamental difference between trusting in Jesus and trusting in Jesus for stuff. Um, I, okay, so let me, let me explain. I trust, the, the person in this world that I trust more than anybody else is my wife. And when I say I trust my wife more than anybody else, my wife has my greatest interests in mind. She loves me to such a degree that she wants what is best for me at all moments. But here's the deal. I trust my wife more than I trust anybody else. I do not trust my wife to not lose my keys. She loses my keys all the time. And here's why this is important. I trust her. I do not trust her to not lose my keys. I trust God. I trust Jesus. But I do not trust Jesus to not let me down. I do not trust Jesus to not say things I don't want to hear. I do not trust Jesus to give me everything I want. I trust Jesus because I know he has my greatest end in mind, but he will put me through difficult things. We sing songs that, that frankly are just messing us up. We have got to stop singing the worship song. You're never going to let, never going to let me down. It's hogwash. God will let us down. God will not allow us to have everything we want. There is a difference between trusting Jesus and trusting Jesus for stuff. And the difference is standing with somebody behind you and doing a trust fall the right way and falling back into the right arms or doing a trust fall, but falling forwards and, and trusting in the wrong way. And too often, as for me uh, and a generation of people in the late 1990s, we were taught to trust in Jesus the wrong way. If you follow Jesus and don't have sex before marriage, you're going to have personal, personal, awesome marriage lives growing up. And we all found out that's not the way it works out. No matter how perfect you may have been and never slept around with anybody, marriage is hard no matter what you do. Um, it's difficult. You're going to have issues and problems. I, I think we need, to, we need to repent of trusting in Jesus for stuff in a utilitarian way. And we need to return to trusting in Jesus because worthy of being trusted. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. I think... That's that, 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 then you have that testimony part of it, right? You experience not necessarily, I got something, but what my experience has been is 
bad, difficult things might still happen. But to me, God is with me in it. That's exactly right. Right. Like, and that's the Psalms, right? Like we can, we can share all these painful situations and experiences and difficulties. And it doesn't mean the cancer is going to go away or the bills are going to get paid or you're going to get all your answers. But to me, the promise seems to be the incarnation that God is with you in that grief and that pain, in that suffering, in the questions. And this is why I like you're saying, it's not that we don't ask the questions. It's not that we don't go through some sort of deconstruction. But there's a difference between going through it to destroy our faith, as you say, right? And mm-hmm. to recognize God is with us in that place, right? Yep. Yeah, Jesus did not come. Um, <laughs> yeah, G- G- Jesus did not come to save our faith. Mm. Uh, he came to save us. Yeah, that's John the Baptist, right? Bless John, Jesus blesses the one who doesn't fall away on account of me, right? That's exactly right. Sometimes in order to save us, God has to strip us of our false faiths and strip us of our false ways of trusting. And, 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 and that process, C.S. Lewis talked about this. He called God the great iconoclast who from time to time, in his language in the great divorce or in, in uh, a grief observed says that, uh, you know, from time to time, God, the way that God actually loves us is he comes up, comes to us and shatters our theology. Um, and, you know, he has this image of, of after his wife, Joy dies, he says, you know, I fell in love with the picture of my wife. And he, he has this epiphany. I started falling in love with the picture I had of my wife more than I loved my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is, it is, it is, it is a, we are violating the first commandment. Um, don't have any images. We are violating the first commandment when we love our theology of God more than we love God. Mm-hmm. Um, to actually love God the most is to be willing to allow our theology to be shaped by who God actually is rather than trying to make our, our, our God fit around our theology. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, as part of this journey, then um, we've talked a lot about the, some of the difficulties of deconstruction and, and those things, but, you know, you point out the role of things like self-knowledge, community, emotions, humility, these really vital things kind of along this walk. Not just community, getting your butt into church. Mm. Like I, I am not, I am not advocating for a group of people to podcast together and just have free flowing conversation. You need to sit your butt down when COVID is done. Yeah. You need to sit your butt down in a room of people that are awkward and weird and the seat is uncomfortable and listen to someone proclaim what God has said and then come forward and take communion, confess mm. your sins and have an awkward coffee hour. I am saying you need to get your butt into church, not be the church, go to church. (laughs) I hear you. You are the church. I get we all are. But there is power. When the doubting Thomas in John 19, when Thomas does not believe in the resurrection, it is the other disciples who tell him he is resurrected. When we are going through doubt, we need a group of people that point us to the resurrected Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, we're, we're made in the image of a Trinity, right? A Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to, to journey on our own. So, so if yeah. someone is going through, who's listening to this right now and is up against all these questions, keeping them up at night, they're scared. I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know if I can be because of X, Y, or Z. Um, your book lays out all of these sort of 
ways you challenge and encourage people to walk through that, to find life on the other side. So sort of just because I, I have two other things I really want to ask. So what would you say to them right now? I, I, well, first, I would say read the book um, so they can sort of we're just touching the surface here of everything that you go into. Um, but how would you sort of challenge and encourage them if they're listening, saying I have these questions that are blocking? I, I'm feeling I'm walking away from the faith. What might you say to them? Yeah, man. Um, you know, I, well, I, I would say, first of all, if you're walking through doubt um, and, and walking through this deconstruction doubt experience, um, you need to remember that doubt is actually the sign. If you're, if you're struggling with doubt, it implies that you have faith. Hmm. So the fact that you are wrestling with your faith means you've got a faith. You know, mm. I have a friend who, uh, a dear friend of mine who claims to be an atheist, but every time we get together, um, he gets really angry about God. And I, I said to him as we were eating this incredible Indian food, I said, man, it's really hard to be really angry at somebody that you don't believe in. Truth is, it's not that you're an atheist, it's that you're really ticked at God. <laughs> When you're, when you're going through doubt, that's not the absence of faith. That's you wrestling with your faith. Mm -hmm. And that's my way of saying, um, the living faith is in there. Fan the flame. It, it's in there. If you're wrestling with doubt, um, I, you, there is a faith inside of you that wants God. And I would also say this, and, and again, the, some of this stuff, I, I, I say it with, with all due respect. If you are walking through doubt and deconstruction and you think you're walking through a unique experience and you're special, you're not. Mm. You have 2,000, you have 3,500 years of history in the Bible of people whose entire life story was wrestling with God. That literally Israel, the word Israel means <laughs> wrestle with God. Yeah. It literally means you're struggling with the living God. If you think you are walking through somehow, way, shape, or form, a unique doubt experience, you are historically ignorant. Mm. You have a beautiful history of people who have walked in front of you in the snow, whose footsteps are big enough for you to step into. Follow their footsteps. Read church history. Read the story of Martin Luther. Read the story of Augustine. Read the story of Mother Teresa. These are people who loved God so much that they followed him in their struggles. You're not alone. And what you are walking through is not unique. And yeah, you know, you, you mentioned the name of Israel, meaning wrestling, and that's the name God gives to Jacob, right? And in that story, I find it so beautiful that, or interesting at least, that uh, Jacob won't let him go until he blesses him. And, I, and maybe that, you know, that would be sort of my encouragement is just don't leave the mat, right? Like God's not going to leave the mat. So bring your questions, bring what you're feeling, but don't leave the mat, right? Yep. And don't That's go exactly till you're blessed. Right. Yep. Um, so, so then two other things I really want to get in on the other side of it. So um, one of the things I think sometimes is people may feel like they're not allowed to bring their questions or by saying I'm, I'm struggling with this or deconstructing this, maybe they're not welcome in church. I guess for the couple minutes we have left, how do we one, um, create spaces where people can stay on the mat and wrestle and know that they're being held and that we have faith with them in this time. And two, as a parent, I'm curious, how do we prepare our children to know it's okay 
that at some point they aren't going to be on the same page as us, but that they're have that, you know what I mean? So that they have that space to know you don't have to leave the whole thing. We can take your questions. We can wrestle with that. We can walk with that. So church and, and parents, how do we navigate that space? In in like four minutes, short, give us the whole thing. Five minute period. <laughs> well, I, um, you know, if you'll notice, if you go back and listen to this transcript or listen to the whole thing again, I have not spent a minute of my time beating the church up. Um, and the reason I'm not going to do that is I've served as a pastor and it is a hellish time to be a pastor right now. It, it is... It is a very difficult time to be a pastor. And we have for so long idolized the role of pastors to be everything for us. Mm. And it is unfair. These are human beings who cannot be and do everything. Um, and so I don't think, I, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to say, I don't think that if we are looking for a church that will perfectly make space for my catered doubts and struggles that I will be able to find it. I don't think that's the place for that. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I always remind myself as a preacher, do I bring my struggles to the pulpit? And I, I have to remind myself that these are sheep. They're not camels. It's not their job to carry my crap for me. And that when I come to church, I need to be mindful that there are other people in the room who maybe not be where I am and not load them down with my epistemic existential crises. Um, but to be sensitive about that, to actually weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And if there's somebody mourning, I mourn with them. If there's somebody who's weeping, I, I, I weep with them. If somebody rejoicing, I rejoice with them. I think the rework of dealing with our doubts and our deconstruction has to happen in trusted, intimate relationships with people who know Jesus and can point us in the right direction in, in relationship. I think that is, listen, on the parenting thing, the number of emails I get from kids or parents who, whose kids are deconstructing their faith and their parents send them, uh, send them a YouTube video, hoping that that will fix their doubt. It doesn't work. Kids don't need a YouTube video. Kids are yearning for their parents to enter into deep relationship. They're longing to have someone in the journey with them. A YouTube video is not gonna solve our doubt and our deconstruction issues. We are longing for someone who can walk with us through it. So Back this incarnation. <laughs> exactly right, friend. And, 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 you know, we become the people we spend our time with. If you spend all your time listening to podcasts where everything is about deconstruction, shocking, you're going to deconstruct your faith. But if you surround yourself with voices that build you up and lead you to Jesus, shocking, you're going to build your faith and go to Jesus. And so hang out with people that point you to Jesus and, and be honest and confess reality in terms of parenting. As a dad, this is very real to me. How do I hand my faith to my son as an act of faith and, and make it so that he knows he, he wasn't forced to follow Jesus? You know, how, how do I do that? And I, for me as a dad, I think my practice and what I want is I want to have healthy boundaries with my son. I want to hand Jesus to my son. 
I want to hand the Bible to my son. I want to hand a love for God to my son, but I want to do it in a way where I actually still trust Ruach. I still trust the Holy Spirit to do the work. And so I think that means honoring boundaries. I remember this one woman, young woman told me this story. She was raised in a Christian home and her parents never gave her boundaries. And she said, the way that I knew that is my mom would never knock before coming into my room. She would just barge into my room. I never had space to have any boundaries. And so she, of course, naturally, like so many, deconstructed her faith in college and then got married, had kids, and all of a sudden wanted God again because having kids makes you want God because you really need God when you got kids. <laughs> and she started reading the book of Revelation. And she came across the image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Mm. And all of a sudden, she was like, holy moly, Jesus has better boundaries than my mom did. Mm. Jesus didn't bargain. And she all of a sudden realized that this is a God who's inviting us in, not forcing us. And the minute we begin to be invited in, that's a different posture. That's a different posture than being forced in. I, as a dad, here's my, here's my point. I don't want to barge in. I want to knock. Mm. I want to knock. And, and my hope would be if my son knows he's the one who's being invited in that he will, he will be the one that takes the steps. Amen. The invitation, that is the invitation for all of us that God offers, right? It, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play an evangelical move here. Okay, I want to close with this. Um, and this, this just came to me on the spot. I haven't shared this anywhere else, but I remember when I met Jesus, they, they, they teach you the sinner's prayer, <laughs> right? Jesus, I confess my sin. Jesus, I, I'm a loser. I really need you. I want to say to the doubter in the room, pray the doubter prayer. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Mm. And I, I know it sounds nerdy, but close your eyes, get on your knees at bed and pray the doubter's prayer. And, and trust that God hears it and is with you. I like that. I'm going to steal that. The doubter's prayer. <laughs> doubter's like the prayer. Jesus prayer. We can do it's the like doubter's there, prayer. There you go. Well, AJ, thank you for all that insight. Where can people find you? So if they want to go further, you've written other books, you do other work. Where would you sort of send people to connect? Yeah, with? Yeah. Well, if you're thinking about going to college, come down to my school. Uh, we, I teach at Bushnell University. I'm the assistant professor of Bible and theology. we got a great little school down here. And if you're, if you're looking to do a doctor ministry program, I lead a whole program on the Holy Spirit at Fuller Seminary. But in all truthfulness, to connect uh, my website, AJ Swoboda writes as in writingrights.com. And then on Twitter, I'm Mr. AJ Swoboda, uh, Mr. AJ Swoboda. Um, but truthfulness, I, I hope that um, your listeners and anybody listening can find usefulness in this book um, because I think after doubt, um, I, I do believe it's an important book and I, I'm not ashamed of that. I put my heart and soul into it. And I believe wholeheartedly um, that the greatest doubters like Doubting Thomas become the greatest missionaries. Um, and eventually make their way off to, to do great things. And so it's the doubt is not the end of your story. Amen. Well, I'll put those links in the description below. AJ, this was an honor and a blessing. Thank you for taking the time to come on and share. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to Ruach Space and you, uh, Phil, for all that you do. Peace. 
Hey friends, Phil here again. I just want to say thank you for joining us for this special conversation. And I do highly recommend go check out the links below to connect even more with AJ's work, to buy the book, and to consider supporting us over on Patreon to gain exclusive access to all of the Rua Space extra content that we do on that platform. Until next time, friends, blessings as you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be with you. 